if they're a VC and they're talking to you, they're like, got it, Australian. Not really serious at growing a company. Mm. Just right. want to follow the wind or the waves. Yeah. And kind so, of don't really understand how to really make something happen. Right. That's like the undertones. Mm. We never get told that unless you have someone that's really, really frank with you and like cares about you enough to give you that truth but right. sitting with most of the big VCs that's what they're thinking at the starting point about an Australian until you prove yourself yeah you've got to lean into that go hey I'm the most serious Australian you've ever met <laughs> at growing a global business and let me tell you why welcome to episode 14 of Startup West the podcast about building great startups in sunny Western Australia I'm Beth Cornelia and I'm Charlie Gunningham and today we're talking with local startup legend Tim Brewer Tim is a man of many things. Mm. He has been a chaplain. He's a family man. He's a startup advisor, an investor, an entrepreneur in residence. And he's actually rarely seen in Perth these days mm. because of how much he travels. He's worked in Silicon Valley for Dropbox, and he also has an MBA for Curtin University. He's been involved in many of Perth's best startups and tech businesses, but today we get to talk to him about his latest startup, Functionally. Tim, welcome to Startup West. Thank you. Great to be here. Fantastic to have you here. We, it's, well, it's great that you're in Perth, actually, because we know that you travel a lot around the world and, of course, you've been very busy launching your latest venture. So can you tell us a little bit about Functionally? Yeah. Um, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Functionally, and we help CEOs scale their business, which a lot of them find extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. It was like, uh, particularly once you're over about 30 staff, it's very, very difficult to design a great organisation. Poorly designed organisations are... Uh, uh, cost a lot of money, uh, cost a lot of investors' money, and they're very unhealthy places to work for individuals. And so we're working on a software-led, uh, implementation-led uh, uh, design tool to help CEOs build great great companies, basically. Right. Can um, you let us into a little bit of how technology yeah. can help companies scale like that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, on the uh, – and this is like the non-pitch version, but mm-hmm. when uh, you're building a company, the – job you're undertaking, as researchers would call it, it's work design. But work design is not one-dimensional. It's job design, team design, and org design. Yep. What happens when you um, abstract your first level of man- uh, layer of managers or you employ your first management team? Yep. Um, job design and team design stay with your managers, depending on where they're at and capability. So when you get to about that. 30 staff, as you say. Yeah, yep. mm-hmm. and org design typically stays with someone at the top of the organisation and you remove context between those two layers, which uh, leads to a huge misalignment between what each individual is working hard on mm. and its ability to apply to the mission of the business. Um, and so the individual and the organisation become out of whack just just by portions of degrees. But if you look at vector mathematics, when everyone's yeah. kind of pulling different directions, you end up with a diminishing output from the team as a whole. And it's something that a huge number of people are talking about at the moment, but no one's really come up yet with a viable solution, just Band-Aid solutions to fix that. We're definitely working on it. Uh, (laughs) We we think we've landed on a really, really big opportunity in market and are furiously working towards solving it in a a really meaningful and profound way. So you had a launch uh, recently or are you about to launch or you're heading towards a launch? No, we did just launch in the US at SASTA, which is a big software as a service conference, probably one of the best software, uh, non in, non, um, non-vendor-led software conferences right. in the world. Is that um, over in San Diego? It is. Yeah. Uh, it was in San Francisco San in the Malo Bay area in oh. San Jose. San Jose, right. Uh, so yeah. about 12,500 people were in attendance at the conference. Yeah. 30% were CEOs of software as a service companies and that's our target market right. as we launch. 
because software companies are a new industry and they're typically growing like crazy and everyone does a bit of everything in the company and then someone will invest in them and they'll grow from 25 to 100 in you know a year and it's just not enough time to get get the organization scaled up well and cause us huge huge so that amount was of chaos. smart because your your future audience your future clients are right there coming to that conference yeah. so you had that right we're going to launch at this conference although the product's not quite Ready yet? The, the product's or? launched. We've had the product out since November, okay. and now we've got a number of clients with the product today. But the product, um, you know, when you talk about market fit, we think we've got problem market fit. But product market fits where the product's dragging itself into a market. We've definitely got a lot of people very interested in the problem we're solving, how we articulate the problem. They think it's very unique. They think it's a new category that we're working on. Like very, very senior people in the Bay Area have sat us down saying, "This is like quite interesting," but the proof's in the pudding with product and so you've got to solve that problem at scale and velocity with a software product. takes a bit more than a couple of months to, to build out when you're working um, in, in such what, what we think is a fairly high friction area of an organisation when you're dealing with the interaction between a manager and an individual, which is where each of those conversations come down to in a, in a company when you're designing a great place to work. So you've got clients already using your product yeah, with all the three, early versions? Three in the US and one here in Perth, and we've got we walked away from conference with hundreds and hundreds of leads. Mm. So we definitely felt like we landed the problem well, mm-hmm. and that got us all the initial attention. Now it's continuing to move at a pace, allows us to learn and build out the product mm-hmm. in the right way. Lots of big product decisions, right. as you can imagine, um, to build something that is really, really interesting seven or ten years from now. And I suppose you're not going to know yet, but what's the feedback been like so far? Well, it's still very, very early days uh, the people are using it. The people are using it love it. We, um, all of the CEOs from the companies we're currently in today texted or emailed wire at conference asking how the launch went. So they're all, they're all super engaged in what we're building. Mm-hmm. They see it as a huge challenge. Uh, we get great feedback from them, what they see is required to make it a product that that you'd use, a manager would use every week. Mm-hmm. And so right now our focus is time to value and reducing that to 30 seconds if we can mm-hmm. uh, and then creating a really interesting evergreen product which has people naturally going back in. Mm-hmm. One, one of the things that strikes us as so strange um, is companies that build out HR products that you have to be forced to go in to do. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, let's go do OKRs. Like we've done, we've surveyed hundreds and hundreds of managers. No one loves doing okay no one loves doing a one-on-one with a team like such an awkward and difficult thing to do mm-hmm. uh, and we're really trying to change the meta on that manager individual conversation and help uh, organizations align their employee and their mission kind mm-hmm. of in harmony mm-hmm. and and to be able to keep that rather than a one massive restructure that occurs every three years and sh- since shutters through an organization be able to just naturally do that yeah, as they go about doing their their business, so. you picked off a tough one then, but a big one. <laughs> it's a huge, it's a hugely yeah. challenging problem. There's a lot of people going after it. Yeah, um, but we are doing something that's pretty unique right now. So and we will see. Where Tom, the germ- time will tell me tell that story. <laughs> where did the germination of the idea come from, or was it sort of something you'd seen go wrong in so many companies? We'll, we'll get to some of your background and your experience. Yeah, I was I was lucky enough. I lived in the US in 2013, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Hmm. But I was lucky enough to see many, many, many companies um, 
grow. And one of the things I really loved doing was in our company going through that growth story from 14 to 50 staff to 100 and to then to 220, which was the my previous IT experience, uh, and and try and work like work out better ways of doing things. And so, when I came back from the US, there was a company that asked, uh, "Hey, could you do job descriptions for us? Because we don't really know what everyone does." <laughs> I was like, "Hey, I've done the job description stuff. Do, done the job description thing before." Wow. Um, that I'm telling you right now, you'll that's not the you, answer. You'll sign the bottom of the job description, stick it in a filing cabinet to, to the person, say, "Hey." You know what you just signed, Charlie? Mm. I actually need you to do all of this stuff, which means no one really has any idea where the energy of your organisation has been deployed. Yeah. And in fast-moving companies, that's like not a little bit damaging. It costs, yes. you know, to a hundred staff member company, it could be a two, three, well, what four million dollars. Someone problem. leaves. Yeah. They're walking out with a lot of uh, organisational knowledge, or yeah. the old being hit by a bus. Uh, when you have yeah. someone come into a team and they're doing the same thing as what you did, but you don't need any more of what you did in the company, so it ends up being this intense kind of competition. You see that happen in companies. Mm-hmm. So you see the person that's doing like 40 different things and the one thing that they're like, oh, I'm just kind of got that because everyone does everything. That's what the C has been saying since we were five people mm-hmm. and now we're 50 mm-hmm. and they get um, the spotlight goes on them because one thing didn't work and they wake up one morning finding out their entire value to the organisation that can be espoused is because this one thing that's actually not working they didn't want to do and they just did it out of the gracious in their heart. They're no good at Anyway, it's like, well, I did it. I told my manager in half ago. Um, and so, yeah, there's like really crazy bad experiences when you can't create visibility into an organisation around the units of work people are working on. Mm. So, yeah. So we solved it once for a company and, you know, we did a bunch of loops and then to finish off this story, mm. had a company in San Francisco two years ago that I ran the pro- – I kept getting asked to do this process and I was like – I don't enjoy it. I don't want to be a consultant, Mm -hmm. uh, but I'll run it. We ran it and the CEO and the CTO sat down and said, Tim, you need to write a book. Like, I'm not writing a book. (laughs) But you're writing a piece of software. (laughs) We think it should be software. I'm like, it shouldn't be software. And I told them why. I had four reasons why it shouldn't be software. And they're like, well, we think it should be. We've never seen anything like it. Um, It was really meaningful to us as managers and leaders in a business. Mm -hmm. Our staff loved the process. And so I then tried to kill it for a year and <laughs> just got to the point where it couldn't be killed. Like all good ideas keep coming back at you, <laughs> yeah. you waking you up at night. Yeah. I'm going, I've got to do this. Yeah. Well, let's take it back a little bit. So you were born and raised in Perth. Yeah. So this is your hometown. And you've kind of yeah. gone, gone through, you know, school and everything that you've done, I suppose, from your origin story. Were you, were you, did you always have an aptitude for technology? Um. I don't think so. Like I wasn't the traditional geek. So like a little bit of context on me, mm-hmm. I um, had congenital heart defect, still right. do, aortic stenosis, mm-hmm. and they didn't really know. Back in the day, you didn't have ultrasounds or anything like that. So to find out whether it's serious or not, mm-hmm. you kind of had to have an operation and they'd like run a thing up to your heart and then try and measure the pressure across the valve and what's going on and take photos of it with like ancient technology. Now they just like ultrasound oh we can see great measure everything in like five minutes but back then they couldn't so like look tim you can't play sport and so i literally (laughs) didn't play cricket football soccer like everything all my other friends played i wasn't able to do and so i i think i had like my recollection of being at school was i tried to sneak in playing sport without anyone (laughs) finding out (laughs) and eventually i came across surfing and um for whatever reason, because my mum thought, well, he's not running. 
Right, so it, mustn't, it mustn't be that hard. Yeah. And so I ended up coming on board. I was like, oh, great, I'll do surfing. And surfing became my entire life for my right. teenage years. Um, fast forward to year 12. Uh, I hope it's okay sharing this much. Fast forward to yeah, year 12. absolutely. And I had a blockage between my kidney and my bladder and my kidney blew up to like an incredibly painful size oh, no. uh, and ended up having to have that operated on in the first term of year 12. And so I missed out on about six weeks of school. It was a terrible experience. All fixed now. It's tough great. year to do it in as well, year 12. Yeah, tough year. So I ended up Ooh. dropping all of my what would be ATAR subjects now mm-hmm. with, with my mum's advice. like, look, just pass year just 12. Get through it. So I went from like all these harder subjects, homework, to like breezing through year 12, surfing all the time. <laughs> It was so much fun. Um, and I kind of realized like, fixed, right? well, I felt like, you know, life is so short. Yeah. I'm just going to live it and live it a hundred percent. And that's still, oh. still part of my kind of makeup right. today, I think. So I suppose that early brush with kind of, yeah, your own. The reality of yeah, life, your mortality. mortality. That yeah. is your origin story. Wow. Absolutely. There we go. So. Post school, tell us what, what happened in the time, you know, maybe the decade well, after mum wouldn't, that. wouldn't let me not study. So okay. a lot of friends were doing like a gap year. They'd gone in and got into university and delayed. Just like you can't really not study now given you didn't complete your 12. So I hatched a plan and I searched through the TAFE Community College or TAFE Handbook mm. and found the coolest looking course that would allow me to surf the maximum of time possible. <laughs> and I Priorities. found nautical fishing in Fremantle. I kid you not. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You, this is like you guys know this story. So I, I got into nautical fishing. What I realised is most of the class in the nautical fishing course back then yep. was told by a juvenile justice or judge that if you don't go and study we're going to put you back into juvie. So my <laughs> classmates, I went from like a private school kid mm. to all of a sudden I'm dealing with all these kids who are like Whoa. really nice but yep. super Different bad. Different I mean, world. They, were, they did not mm. show up a class. They did not care about the results. Mm. I literally showed up, listened, sat the exams and aced. Like you right. did fish a day a week. You ate fish a day a week. <laughs> And you learn how not to crash boats a day a week. Wow. It was the best course. And I surfed four, uh, four days a weekend in Margaret River. I basically lived in Margaret River every weekend oh, for that goodness. year. Wow. Um, still, I was like, hey, you can die. Like, doesn't everyone else realize yeah. this? I'm going to go and do the stuff I love. Right. Um, I did that for a bit. I ended up doing some other study um, that led me to, I worked at a surf shop as well because, you know, surfing was my thing. Uh, then did some Bible college and ended up getting an offer to be a chaplain at Ocean Reef Senior High School. I always like had lots of kids at the surf shop. You know, I'm fast forwarding through years, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. had a lot of kids at the surf shop I worked at and um, ended up getting the job at Ocean Reef. It was a quite a heavy surfing school, which I Help. guess... You know, the two, and I was there for five years as the high school chaplain. Most rewarding job right. ever. You got to have 1,400 students in the school and uh, went to school every day feeling like I was making a difference in the world. Mm. So, and how did community that? Community work as well, wasn't it? As, uh, as yeah, well. I also worked for the Department of Community Development yeah. mm-hmm. uh, at Hillary's Marina. At the time, Hillary's wasn't fully developed and they had some pretty bad antisocial behaviour uh, where they didn't have lights, basically. Right. Uh, And so we were a team that worked with police and youth workers down there um, in some pretty bad situations. I got to see some crazy stuff around that Mm. time. It's a real counterpoint to kind of the way you live life now, that this, what you just described, which we we will Mm. get to, but that's... You still surf? I yeah. do still surf, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. That, that makes constant. a lot of sense. <laughs> so yeah. tell us how you made that shift from being a school chaplain yeah. to moving into the, the tech and corporate world. How did that transition happen? Yeah. Um, 
when I was 25, a friend of mine, I quite enjoyed sitting on committees. So I'd always end up on like chaplaincy committees and different things that involve people getting together and helping make decisions. And uh, my friend was like, oh, you should probably go into politics. Like totally well thought through. And so I was like, oh, yeah, that, that sure. would be interesting. Uh, and we met. I was like, well, I'll just call the mayor because I'd like met him through. So we went and sat and went, oh, hey, how do you get into like government, like local government? <laughs> He's like, oh, actually, we've got a, a uh, an election in four months. Um, you live in uh, Joondla, yeah. Uh, you know, let's, I don't think Ocean Reef doesn't have that many people running for it. You should have a look at Ocean Reef. I'm like, oh. So we went. I was working in Ocean Reef at the time right. uh, and ended up a month later deciding with the help of my friend who ran my campaign because he'd kind of like voted me in to go look at it. <laughs> to run as an independent in Ocean Reef and won the local government election. So I went right. uh, through that. At the time, uh, Vicky was pregnant, so my wife, uh, Vicky, very, very lucky to have been married 20 years this year. Congratulations. Um, and uh, Vicky was pregnant. I was in local government and felt like, oh, wow, I might go on from like this one great thing that I enjoyed to a volunteer role that happens at night times mm-hmm. if you've ever been involved in local government. So it isn't particularly high paid unless you're the, the mayor or deputy mayor. Um, and got into the city of Joondalup. Well, if you can remember back that far, the city of Joondalup was the most controversial council yes. in the whole of Australia. Yeah. And so I remember all of the TV cameras being there on the first night. We're getting sworn in. We had not had a meeting yet. I'm getting drilled by the media on, like, the situation between the cameras mayor and the face. CEO. Oh, the no. mayor had just got in. He had previously been on council. The CEO and him didn't like each other. And that, uh, that went pretty crazy. So I was there seven months before the whole council stood down and in the process wow. decided, it, quite frankly, I was like, you know what, I shouldn't be in the school. That's enough politics Yeah, that's me. like I'm done. Um, <laughs> Gave it a red hot go. I've had a lifetime yeah. of politics <laughs> yeah. in seven months. It was months. the most insane process I've ever been through. Wow. But I didn't want to be in the school. I was like, you know what, this is actually a bit damaging in my chaplaincy role. Yes. Mm. And so I went into head office just, just to like, just going through an inquiry and all the things to do because I can only stand in the whole council. So it wasn't yeah. like me personally. I was just like a... Was a like a, a bystander that got sucked along for the ride of mm. what I saw as like a lack of leadership in that situation by both, uh, yeah. both the key people involved, um, and went to chaplaincy said office and the CEO was like Tim, you really need to go get some study, and he just was throwing me at projects like mm. fix this, fix cars, fix IT, and I went and got a Lotteries West grant to build out um, all the IT needs for chaplains that worked in public high schools at the uh-huh. time, uh, and. Um, that, that was my first foray into technology, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, the office had, this wasn't that long ago, they had like five staff and 85 staff out in the field and like one or two computers on dial-up modems and that's mm-hmm. how they did all their communications. It's just So what wild. year are we at now? Um, this was in 2003, right. four mm-hmm. was um, the trail end of that. Yeah. Um, so I, my, the CEO at the time, Stanley J. Raj, really wonderful guy, sponsored me into my MBA at Curtin. Mm-hmm. So I had to get these crazy good marks in my first four subjects and didn't have to go into an undergrad degree, which is very lucky because it would take me ages. Mm-hmm. Um, did really like the best. I was really like, holy moly, I'm actually really good at studying because I never really had the chance because I got right. so sick in year 12. Um, and your wonderful TAFE course get you straight into the MBA? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nautical a lot of fishing. Credits, yeah. Do you know I got no, no credits no for credit nautical for fishing? That was crazy. No credit for that class. No it's credit. An outrage. Oh. Yeah, it's totally crazy. And about <laughs> halfway through that, I worked there a couple of years in head office, really enjoying it. Um, Stanley done a great job of bringing the organization into kind of the 21st century. Mm. Um, 
And a friend of mine, Steve Crockett, was was building an IT company and he'd grown very quickly to about 14 staff. And it was a huge challenge for him. He's very technical, did not like the people side of the business growing, loved the like servers and hosting and stuff like that. Um, and one day I was at his office in the middle of the night sorting through some challenges he was having in that area, applying what I was learning in my MBA. I was quite like, well, I didn't expect anything for it. I just, he's a very good friend. It's like, oh, I need a business partner. I'm like, oh, that's a great. I think that'd be really good. You should go find someone with complimentary skills. And it's like, I want you as my business partner. I'm like, that is a terrible idea, Steve. Like, I have never been in business. You don't know if I'm any good. I'm just a surfer guy. I'm good at nautical fishing. That's all I know. Uh, that's my skill set. And uh, over six months, I needed to complete some projects I was working on. I wanted to leave really well and eventually became his partner at, right. at Crocs Technology, wow. um, which looked after IT in schools. So I Perfect. spent my first two weeks working there, being in IT support at Kingsway Christian College, like actually sitting, supporting people with printers and computers, wow. uh, which I think I was okay at, but it Spent most of my time and then running got, people ops. That grew, that got sold. And then, yeah, so yeah. we merged uh, sometime later with a company called Accord Technologies who specialised in small business. Mm-hmm. Uh, we acquired another company in that period of time, two other companies actually, and then eventually sold in 2010 um, to uh, Anatel, which was just before a reverse listing. They acquired mm-hmm. five other companies at the same time. We had no real idea. We are just dealing with the acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up. I was the youngest director in the team. We had five, a silent director and four active directors. And um, they didn't believe the acquisition was real. So they sent me on a plane to Sydney to negotiate with the next M&A lawyer from Telstra who was working for the company acquiring us at the time. I just worked out they really wanted us. And so we hatched kind of a plan and got everyone on the team what they wanted out of the transaction. Some right. of us well, were retiring. Me and Steve were quite happy to keep when we were so young. I was like 31 or 30 mm-hmm. or what have you. So mm-hmm. um, we exited to them. I worked for them for two years in a listed environment. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up looking after a huge number of staff, so about 150-ish people reporting through to me through the org, which yeah. was a great experience, yeah. uh, a tough one, but probably was part of the seed of me thinking about what goes wrong when you scale yes. that fast. I can see the, the, the germ of functionally in your story all the way through, actually, isn't yeah. it? It's a natural conclusion to what you've been doing. Well, um, one of the things I'd learned over that period of time, because we kept growing, I kind of had to re-kickstart the organisation. You get to like a point where all your old systems didn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. So you'd like rebuild everything and they're like, oh, great, we're good. And it's like, oh, we broke again. Like you'd rebuild everything. And that was kind of my job in operations mm-hmm. is to think right across departments. Mm-hmm. Um, then in late 2012, I was speaking at a conference in the US and Vicky was there as well. And I decided at the end of that year I wanted to finish up and um, I was driving back to the airport with the gentleman who ran the conference that I was at. It's like, oh, what are you going to do next? I'm like, oh, I'd love to live in the US, but uh, it's really difficult with the visa and stuff like that because you have to work for someone. And yeah. it's like, oh, I'll sponsor your visa as long as you speak at all these. And he like, had four big conferences the following year. I'm like, sweet. Right. <laughs> and within three months we were living in the US um, doing what I wanted to do next, which was share what I knew about my old industry and managed services. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to pursue what was next for me and my career. I want to learn about software companies and how to build a software company. Mm. And um, is that the point at which you did some work for Dropbox? Yeah, so I was really lucky. We landed on the ground. I picked up 
um, a few contracts with different companies. I was trying to have like a year that balanced having like a year off. So like Exodus <laughs> company, here. work gap year. You never got the gap I had in my gap year. Um, <laughs> and ended up picking up work with a, a great company called ConnectWise who's just exited, um, rumoured to be about a $1.5 billion exit. Wow. Uh, uh, worked for a, a tough but great CEO there. Uh, I helped start a company out of New Zealand with a buddy of mine and a, another guy. Um, I also picked up work, got introduced to Dropbox. And at the time, I had no real, I used Dropbox at the time. I had no real idea. It was like, I just want lots of software experience. Mm. I went and met with them. They're probably the most exciting. Mm. I was in San, uh, I was in Las Vegas with the family at a big HP conference, a traditional IT, and got this intro. And so we literally hopped in the car and drove to San Francisco, rolled up to the offices of Dropbox. They just purchased two football field long offices with like a Lego room and a yoga room and like a restaurant and like all this crazy stuff. And I remember scooting from the front reception (laughs) because you do, I was pretty good on all those kind of devices and we scooted into the lunchroom and had lunch and it was a very short meeting for the guy I needed to speak to and I'm like, that did not go very well. But they called me back two weeks later and I'm like, hey, we met a bunch of different people and Hmm. we'd like to, can you give us an offer to come work with us on building out our channel program? And so for the next... 16 months, I got to work with a team and, and at a time Dropbox grew from 260 people to about 13, 14, 1,500 people wow. in in the time I was there. So it was like an absolute rocket ship. In our previous podcast, we asked Ian McIntyre from Hum the same question. How, how are Aussies sort of perceived over it? Silicon Valley and yeah. San Francisco. You've got a good reputation or does it not matter that you're Australian, just another person? Um, or was there something interesting about you no, because you're an Aussie? It depends. We come from a small market, so I think there's some limitations around that. We're liked. Like everyone will come and say hi. Um, So if you're a team member, team members I found were very friendly and they'll be like, oh, we know another Australian. It'd be like someone in the office. They'd be introducing (laughs) one other person. Like, oh, this is Joy or this is, you know, like, I'm like, oh, hey. And she's like, oh, Australian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, If they're a VC and they're talking to you, they're like, Got it, Australian. Not really serious at growing a company. Uh, just right. want to follow the wind or the waves Yeah, and kind so, of don't um, really understand how to really make something happen. Right. That's like the undertones. Mm. You'll never get told that unless you have someone that's really, really frank with you and like cares about you enough to give you that truth. But right. sitting with most of the big VCs, that's what they're thinking at the starting point about an Australian. Until you prove yourself. Yeah, you've got to lean into that and go, hey, I'm the most serious Australian you've ever met <laughs> at growing a global business and let me tell you why. Fantastic. So you start from there. Yep. So how do you balance all of this? So you're a you're a working dad, you're a consultant, you're an advisor, you're an investor. So you're not you're not doing yeah. a lot of fishing anymore. How do you make all of that work? That's a good question. You always have a lot a lot of lines in the water. I, I think. Um, <laughs> well, look, coming back. So we finished in the US. I just wanted to be a year there. Came back, and Dropbox had broken me for size and scale. So I wanted to. Um, I just thought I'd go and start another business post coming home mm. and never really found anything. So it's just like super helpful. And so I did end up working out how to run a portfolio of a later stage advisory responsibilities, which have ultimately turned into board roles mm-hmm. um, and then been involved in earlier stage stuff, which included um, Miru D and Plus 8. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also did a stint with Larson Ventures as their EIR as well. I think they're one of the best investors we've got here in Perth. And at Sector, I think you were involved. Uh, yeah, I've helped out at Sector, Health Moodle, Engine. Health Engine, and done little bits. I didn't like want to go who? and be an executive somewhere. Right. Uh, so I've kind of done like boutique little projects of different different genres. 
Uh, and a lot of those companies, the whole goal is to then build out an executive team. So there's a natural cycle where I don't. That, that was not my goal. I, d- I didn't want to do that. Um, but now it seems like your your singular focus is is functionally absolutely everything in the else last, has had to drop. Last away. four or five months, I've been paring back all of my responsibilities. Said no to just about everything. For probably yeah. the best things crossing my path I've <laughs> ever had globally. Mm. So and ironic. just saying no to them all. <laughs> uh, but I think we're sitting on a really big, interesting opportunity that needs to be teased out. And, yeah. and you get to the point where through last year it was like, hey, we're trying to kill the idea. Then I got a co-founder. Then I built a team. Then we raised funds. Then we got clients. It was like, oh, I'm There's not, I'm not trying this. to kill this anymore. So, yeah. um, How big's the team functional? Team, we've got 14 people and about right. 7.8 FTE of effort. So there's a bunch of part-time specialists. And presumably you've raised some money to get this going. Yeah, we were lucky enough to raise a, a reasonable angel round, I mm. guess you'd call it, or a pre-seed round if you're talking in US language. WA or US? Or uh, we raised about a third out of the US and mm. two-thirds out of Australia, some out of Western Australia, most um, a third, a third, a third. Mm. Uh, we raised it very quickly. We're very lucky to have the round close, oversubscribe and get to a, a good kind of runway amount mm. in about five business days, which That's for whoa. most VCs was too quick. They're like, oh, yeah, we'd like to. Oh, no. That's <laughs> closed. Yep. Guys, we, we oversubscribed and I, um, we, we wanted to raise a particular amount um, which allowed us to test out the theory. Yeah. We didn't really get too far ahead of ourselves. So we raised a particular amount. We went to market and literally it launched on Thursday. Monday morning I called one of the investors and say, hey, I think we're going to extend the round by 50% to allow some of these people that want to be involved. Those very strategic people in, in my view, both at a product level and at a market level. And um, he's like, oh, great, I'm doubling my investment. I'm like, oh, no, I'm calling you to kind of let you know out of courtesy. He's like, I know how this goes. I'm doubling. I'm like, okay. Um, I'm like, I don't even know if I know you well enough to feel good about See that. See the like, window closing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So wow. it was, it was, um, that was pretty, pretty crazy to go through that. And the first time I'd fully led, I've been alongside people raising funds yeah. a lot, but to be and in the driver's seat. involved in it yourself too. Yeah, yeah, to be, to be involved you know, yeah. that directly was like super fascinating. Because they say WA is tough and I've seen it. It's been really, really tough. I've known companies that have like 130 meetings and only in the 131st meeting if they raise yeah. money, WA is tough for tech. Yeah. But you raised it pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. And we, ra- we raised a, what I think probably for WA terms is a pretty significant amount of capital. Mm-hmm. Not not by US terms, but, right. but we sit kind of somewhere in between. Um, I think what I've learned about raising capital is investors are looking for certainty and signals. So we spent a lot of time focused on what are the right signals and at what stage should we raise capital. And So I think it's for West Australian entrepreneurs, it's getting more experience to understand from an investor's perspective what certainty and what signals they're looking for. And um, the second advice I always have is you can't create competition without competition. Right. There we go. Right. Very good advice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's no, you can't like, oh, we'll create pressure by closing the round fast. It's like that's not pressure. No. Pressure is there's no more round. Yes. Like that's pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And there's no way to do that than, than work really, really hard. And you'd say, um, yeah, a lot of great learnings in that. Fantastic. Well, we wanted to finish with a quick fire round of questions. Uh, so just first thing that comes into your head, what do you think is the single most important factor that makes a successful startup? I think people. Right. People, yep. yep. Team, that's something that a comes up. A third of my time spent on team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get asked about this a fair bit, about 
10% of my time spent on the team that's coming next, even though I don't know if we're going to need that, mm-hmm. right? Because I think the team are the ones that go to solve some of the gnarliest problems. So we were really lucky for us. It was about finding people that believed in the problem that we're solving, that had personally experienced and they had crazy experience. So there's a difference like competency, like, oh, this person's competent and this person's experienced it for 10 years. Mm-hmm. You just develop this sense about how to go and do something. So finding people that have genuine experience in a startup because you're moving so quickly. Yeah. Um, and startups, you don't have time to sit and train people. Yep, yep, yep. Um, Quick fire round. Do you believe in insourcing or outsourcing? Uh, a bit of both. Mm-hmm. Should a startup self-fund or raise money? Depends. Uh, depends on the idea. Depends on the team. Depends on the style of business that you're building. Mm-hmm. Both have their merits. And uh, I, I don't think it's one-dimensional. And I, I think that people think it's one way or the other uh, are a short-sighted. I've seen both work extremely well. Yeah. I've seen both fail epically. Yeah. <laughs> are you a PC or a Mac guy? PC. Mm-hmm. Red or white? Blue. <laughs> Blue? Mm-hmm. What podcast do you listen to apart from Startup West, of course? Yeah, I love on the Andreessen Horowitz yep. podcast. I think that's really, really good. Um, I listen to a bit of – I tend to have my friends recommend me good podcasts as opposed to like this is the podcast I listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that to be better. Better so where I – Particular episodes rather than subscribe to something and always get it in the feed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? Okay. Probably my favourite Twitter handle to follow would be Jason Lipkin from Sasta. Mm-hmm. I just find him like incredibly pragmatic. Mm-hmm. Um and has like tons and tons of real world wisdom, and often is like talking about other things he's heard that he Jason finds in Limkin. He runs. Uh, he built uh, the signing product that Adobe bought. It's called oh, Echo Sign. Yeah. Oh, right, okay. uh, so it's a pretty large company, and um, he runs the Sasta conference we launched at. Uh-huh. Great, great Fantastic. guy. Fantastic. Well, look, we'll leave it there, Tim. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. We wish you and the Functionally team all the very best for the future and we do Thank want you. you to come back and um, tell us about it, hopefully. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, that yeah. would be fantastic. And thank you to everyone for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, give the Startup West podcast a review because that's what helps people to find us and also keeps it in your feed. We are also on Spotify now, so as well as all your standard favourite podcast platforms. So do check us out there. And we'd like to give a shout out to other WA podcasts. Joel Brown, who I met a few years ago, has the amazingly successful Addicted to Success podcast. So do check that one out. Also want to thank our sponsors. Startup West is brought to you by Startup News and Alika. Thanks, Alika. No worries. And brought to you by the fine people at Ray's, Space Cube, Curtin University and BDO. See you next time. And thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me along.